Welcome to Beyond Carbon, the podcast where we find out how investors are thinking about climate change, sustainability, ESG, and a whole range of related issues beyond carbon. Before we begin today's episode, we'd like to remind our listeners that the content provided in this podcast is for informational purposes only. The following discussion does not constitute professional investment advice, and listeners should not make any financial decisions based on the content of this podcast. Now, let's get started with the show. Welcome to another episode of Beyond Carbon. I'm your co-host, Chris Ito, and today, George Dyer and I are talking about sustainable food systems and exploring the intersection of technology, food insecurity, and climate change with the CEO of VegTech Invest, Elizabeth Alfano. Now, before coming on, I was admittedly a little bit worried that this was going to be a talk about how everyone should adopt a vegan diet, and I was going to feel a little bit guilty for craving that burger or occasional hot dog, but that ended up not being the case at all. Elizabeth started out by sharing her career journey from corporate America to becoming an investor and now an entrepreneur leading a company that provides investment solutions in sustainable food. She talks about the importance of plant-based solutions in tackling problems like food insecurity and climate change, but emphasized the fact that she's really not about trying to tell people what they should or shouldn't eat. And instead, much of our discussion centered around the investment opportunity and how investors might be able to benefit from allocating capital to companies that are innovating to make plant-based food cheaper, better tasting, more accessible, and how these investments might be able to fit with net zero portfolios. We also talked about the challenges in growing the plant-based industry and what the future of food systems might look like down the road. So sit back, relax, and dive into the future of food with Elizabeth Alfano. Hi, Elizabeth. Welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I appreciate you taking the time. Really looking forward to this this conversation. So we've been following your career here for a little bit. And maybe before we delve into the specifics of what you're currently doing with VegTech, maybe you can tell uh, the listeners a little bit about your professional journey, right? I mean, it's been pretty diverse. You're media savvy, you've become an expert in plant-based nutrition, and now you're the CEO of this index company called VegTech. But maybe you can share a little bit of sort of how your career evolved to this point. Sure. So, um, you know, it's one of the benefits, and there are some folks, of being 56. You've been around long enough to do many different things. So when I got out of business school, I immediately went to work for the Kellogg Company. And although I didn't think that large Fortune 500 companies would be my future, I don't have the political skill set it really needs for that. I loved working in food. And so immediately after graduate school, went and worked on Special K and Frosted Mini Wheats, um, exited that and started my own business. And when I exited my own business and entrepreneurship really speaking to me much more than a Fortune 500 company would speak to me, I exited nicely that company. And so I had time on my hands and I delved into investing, which I'd always done on the side. But now after that entrepreneurial exit, investing was uh, sort of my full-time gig, if you will. And I was investing for a small family office. And at the same time as I was investing for the small family office, I was starting to educate myself more on diet changes and what I would want to do there for myself personally. And then 
once I realized, oh, way beyond nutrition, there are things that one can impact through food, such as food insecurity, climate change, biodiversity loss, mitigating pandemic risk, um, animal welfare, of course, human health and human health care costs. I started looking into the geopolitical aspect, if you will, or the larger issue of food and what it can do. So at the same time, now remember, I'm still investing for a family office, and I realized through my own journey that the food system was going to change, and it would be a radical change because it no longer works for society. And I wanted to invest this family office in food systems transformation, but I didn't want to put them in venture, way too risky, no liquidity, you need to dive in with some pretty big ticket numbers, et cetera. I wanted to put them in an ETF. I couldn't find it anywhere. So I thought, well, now that's crazy because I've done the research. BlackRock's going to do this, obviously, because it's all here. And I waited and I waited and I realized, oh, BlackRock's never going to do this because <laughs> they're they're not experts in food systems. And so that's that's the sort of the nuts and bolts of it. And then I, I started with Dr. Sasha Goodman, VegTech Invest, which is the registered investment advisory that produces the EATV ETF, Plant-Based Innovation and Climate ETF. Fascinating. It's so cool. It's, I mean, it's just, on the one hand, it's kind of obvious, but sometimes we just don't think about it and take it for granted just how much the food system is integral to all these other systems that you mentioned. And yeah, I think it's a really important lens for for investors to be looking at. So tell us before we kind of go deeper on that, tell us a little bit about the ETF kind of when you think about food systems and go to about creating an ETF, you know, with that lens, uh, what does it look like? And what kind of companies are you looking at? How are you thinking about it? Ultimately, I think about the ETF the way I think about business and business school and all the businesses I've done ever since that is that what businesses do great is that they take a problem and they solve it at scale. So when I look at the ETF, we put together a list, a basket of global companies up and down the supply chain that are innovating to replace current inefficient systems with efficient systems. And the market always has and always will reward efficiency. So from a very bird's eye view, that's what we look to do with the ETF, really impact. So screening in, sure, we screen out for ESG as well. So we're not you know, investing in companies that are really supporting old legacy systems, which worked great for us in the past. We all grew up, you know, eating lots of meat and dairy and love it. And we still do, but it's just not working. Ultimately, we need to feed more people using fewer resources in a shorter amount of time with more nutritious food while not damaging the planet in the process. It's a tall order. And so that our current system can't do it, but there are companies innovating to use much less land, much less water, much less deforestation. And, and we can go into to all mm. those things if you'd like. Is shareholder engagement an aspect of it too? I mean, do you have hold some of those legacy companies that are innovating and rethinking systems as well? I love this question because yes, shareholder engagement is a big part of what we do, but no, we don't hold on to the legacy companies. Shareholder engagement is um, something we do twofold. For the companies up and down the supply chain that are in the ETF, we really do shareholder engagement around more disclosures, get more data, you know, there's this big anti-ESG discussion going on, but you know, ultimately, one makes a good decision when one has access to good data, 
No one's going to have perfect data, but you want to have good data. So in my estimation, why would anyone not want ESG data? It's sort of like saying, hey, I'm going to buy this building and I'm going to look at the rent roll, but I'm not going to go and get an inspection to see if the windows leak or the boiler's about to break or the Mm -hmm. roof is leaking. I'm not interested in the risks that could come from having to put $40,000 into a new boiler. I'll just look at the rent roll. And that's Mm. what um, ESG is for me. ESG gives me all this other data, like the inspection report on the building. Mm -hmm. I've gone off a little bit on a tangent. I'm sorry to do that. No, it's a great analogy, though. Yeah. (laughs) But um, so ultimately, we want as much information as as we can get. And so we, we do shareholder engagement for more disclosures. And then we do shareholder engagement with the legacy companies saying, hey, start moving to more efficient systems that pollute less and that damage less. You know, right now, animal factories produce 32% of the world's global methane. Mm-hmm. Now that methane, we've, I'm sure you've talked on this show how nefarious methane is, mm-hmm. but the yeah. good news is about, you know, I'm sort of a happy person. The good news about methane is it's a <laughs> silver lining in that it has a short window. So you can actually impact climate change with methane if you reduce methane. So we have to reduce methane. We have to reduce deforestation. 41% of the world's tropical deforestation comes from animal factories. We just, we really do shareholder engagement and say, we will consider you for the fund if you Mm. move towards it, but we don't bring them in. We do the shareholder (laughs) engagement, not having them in saying, here's the carrot, come to us. So you could see at some point then perhaps that the more traditional sort of industrial food companies could one day, if they demonstrate that they are transitioning their business models per se, they could actually become part of the universe for consideration in the e- in the ETF eventually. I'm doing jumping jacks just at the thought of it. I, I mean, <laughs> if if you want to bring down methane, if you want to bring down pandemic risk, if you want to bring down deforestation, if you want social justice and that you want people to all have access to food, those legacy companies have to shift. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right now, I can't express this authentically enough or more or passionately enough. This is not a slam to how anyone eats or even to how anyone produces food. There was a time when it all made sense and it all worked. It just doesn't now. And we need them to get on board. You know, you think how many people can afford a filet mignon? Very, very few filet mignons, that small piece of beef in the in the thousand pound cow. Boy, but if you start innovating to make beef from animal cells and you don't have to cut down trees, grow crops, give those crops that have fiber and protein to animals, and then the animals need land, water, time. I've got to cut down more trees, grow more crops. All that waste Mm -hmm. means we're not going to be able to produce enough food for people. If you bypass that awful cost of goods sold, it's just an awful business equation. I'm speaking just numbers now. The legacy company can make more money and it can be filet mignon for everybody. So you're making it just the piece of meat that you want in that controlled environment. So while use, utilizing less resources. So these are the kind of companies and innovations that we get behind. And we really anticipate, you know, nobody knows the future, but great financial growth because the technologies that are adopted en masse are the technologies that bring things to us that are more convenient and cheaper. So we see that as financial upside as well as really strong social impact. We, you know, we see sort of the same analogy when we look at 
fossil fuel companies, right? Mm -hmm. And whether or not they can or should be transitioning their business. So at a big picture, there's an analogy there between you know, what's happening on the food side and, and what's happening with fossil fuel producers. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. And it's interesting to hear also about the engagement piece where in the fossil fuel conversation around divestment versus engagement, it's sort of this binary. And it's a good point that you don't necessarily need to be an owner of the company to engage with them, to encourage these kind of changes as an investor. You might have a little bit of a different voice in doing it that way, but I think it's a great point that that engagement can happen even if you're not holding the company right now. Yeah. So maybe we can sort of talk a little bit about what types of companies actually are in the ETSF. So given what you said about how interconnected, you know, food security, climate change, health, all these issues sort of wrapped up in food, talk to us a little bit about how you think about the universe and, and the type of companies that you end up selecting for the for the ETF. I, I have to admit it's gonna it's probably you know broader than maybe one would think. It's much broader than one would think. So ultimately, like we were saying, we want to feed more people using fewer resources, giving them better food in a shorter amount of time while creating less damage. So we look at a universe of companies from around the world, anywhere in the supply chain that are innovating to replace for more efficient systems. So that might be ag tech, anywhere in vertical farms and greenhouses and sustainable fertilizers that are helping us get more things like legumes, you know, having so much protein and being this great cover crop and helping us get away from monocropping. And, you know, legumes can be just rice and beans. My gosh, who doesn't love that? Or they can be turned into Beyond Meat Steak. I mean, they make that, which is a super clean label. They make Beyond Meat Steak out of fava bean. So anyway, so early on in the in the supply chain. Then we look at those innovative companies that are really producing novel technologies like Ginkgo Bioworks that is licensing out their precision fermentation technologies so that others can make products out of that. If you'd like me to explain precision fermentation, I can in just a second. And then we have ingredient companies. Of course, we are looking at things like quinoa and chickpea and fava bean and barley, which uh, we'll talk about in a second if you'd like, but you know, have to get away from just soy and People say, well, soy, that's plant-based. Oh, my word. We cut down trees to grow soy. Do we give that soy to people? No, we give it to animals. Just a side note, I can't help myself. So the inefficient business equation we're talking about, it takes 25 to 35 calories of crop or feed to get one calorie of cow, 16 to get one calorie of pig, nine to get one calorie of chicken. Now who says, sure, I'm going to give you $2.50 or $3.50 and you give me a penny back. This is why I mean this is a bad business equation. Um, okay, moving on. But from the ingredients, we move to the flavor texture companies like Givaudan out of Switzerland that is really working to make these things taste good and have great texture. And then at the end of the line, we get the consumer packaged goods product that you might recognize on the grocery store shelves. Um, and that's in food and materials. And so this is where a plant-based innovation ETF is maybe broader than you think, which is great for diversity and limiting risk. Ultimately, we want sustainable supply chains. That's food, but that's also materials. And we see those as two sides of the same coin. So if you're going to produce less beef, you're producing less leather. By the way, just go to a leather tannery and you will be thankful that we 
are producing hopefully less leather. We're trying mm-hmm. to because that's an environmental nightmare. But um, so we have about 20% of the fund is materials and 80% is mm-hmm. anywhere of the supply chain for food. Got it. And how, I mean, so many questions and directions we could take this conversation, but just in terms of this transition and recognizing the inefficiencies and the environmental impacts and everything else, what is your sort of big picture macro take on how this transition is going? I mean, you know, this has been underway for many years, decades, but accelerating in some ways, maybe, I don't know. How do you see where we are right now? Yeah, I see it as I'm a pretty happy person. It is like (laughs) a win, 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 because meat lovers get to keep their meat. No one, like meat's not going away and no one thinks it's going away. I'll, I'll just sort of say, I I love vegans. They're nice people. It's completely insignificant here. They're that's, that's not what we're talking about. I don't know what they're going to do, but the rest of, of the world is going to keep eating meat and they're going to eat it in a sustainably produced way that uses fewer resources. So I see us having lots more consumer choice. You know, think about this. You walk down the chip aisle and you're like, oh my gosh, is it a yellow chip or a blue chip or a square or a triangle? Is it baked? Is it fried? Is it in a can? Is it in a bag? So many choices for chips. I look at the meat section and I think ribs, do it or don't. Like there's just not, you know, you're going to have ribs from animal factories. You're going to have ribs from uh, grass grown meat. You're going to have cows. You're going to have ribs from, I don't even eat ribs. Do they come from cows? They might come from pigs. Okay. Well, so you've got, you know, grass fed, then you've got plant-based coming from things like legumes, et cetera. Then you've got cultivated ribs, ribs just grown in a controlled environment with just the cells from the animal. And then you've got, you know, someone who says, I'm I'm just going to have a salad. You know, you're going to just, you're going to see a big range. And I think it's not going to be political like it is now. It's Mm -hmm. going to be seen as an issue of national security for America to start innovating, to bring real growth and jobs, growth in terms of wealth, growth in terms of jobs back to America for producing food in a very innovative way. That's going to be a part of our national security. I think that's where the conversation is going. Where do we stand on the the cultivated meat question? Because I think, am I correct? Like what we see in the grocery store now with companies like Beyond Meat, et cetera, those are mostly plant-based meat products. Is that right? But they're working on the cultivation? Yeah. I don't know that Beyond will ever get into cultivated meat, but there are some great minds working on cultivated meat and cultivated meat in the U.S. has been approved by the USDA for two companies, Upside Foods and also uh, Good Meat, which is a subsidiary of Eat Just. So it's already approved in Singapore. It's actually served in Singapore. I've had Mm -hmm. it. I've had cultivated salmon and I've had cultivated chicken. And Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm just so happy for meat lovers. It's everything you'd ever want without all the damage. Well, I'm glad you mentioned what you did about vegans because I was a little bit worried that I was going to come on here and you were going to start to (laughs) pressure me and browbeat me about not being a vegan myself. So thank you for making that particular statement. Isn't Um, that so funny? I've heard this before and um, no, I'm super happy for for meat lovers. This is going to be lots of choice. And with real innovation, this is why, you know, we love from a financial standpoint, real growth comes from innovation. It doesn't come because a company says we're going to boost our sales 4% this year. It comes from disruptive innovation. That's where you get, you know, growth at a a national scale. I think the price is going to come down. So, you know, we had some droughts 
droughts meant a lot of herds of cows were decimated. That's going to really inflate the price of beef. These sorts of subject to the weather kind of food prices mm. in the long run, not not next year, but in the long run, we take that out of the equation and, and it's much more stable and brings down the price. And this is why I, you haven't asked me this, but I'll just go off this tangent if it's okay. This is why people say, well, you're so convinced. Why do you think this is, you know, you like the idea, but I don't really see it taking place. Here's why I think it is inevitable, if I may say that. Yes, you have younger generations, millennial, Gen Z, and they are wanting to see transparency in the supply chains. They're wanting to know about justice throughout the supply chain and damage throughout the supply chain. Mm -hmm. And they want things that are better for animals, people, and the planet. That's fantastic. But what you also have is Singapore highly investing, Israel highly investing, China deeply investing, Holland, Germany, Canada, the United States. Food security is an issue of national security. Feeding people is the way politicians stay in government. So there's a lot of money, including Biden's recent bold goals around biomanufacturing, which includes alternative proteins and precision fermentation. So there's an acknowledgement from governments around the world that they need to move this way. And then industry, the legacy industry, you know, JBS just invested heavily in cultivated meat. Tyson has plant-based products. A Maple Leaf has plant-based products. They want better business bottom bottom lines, and they know that there is pressure to stop externalizing the cost to society mm-hmm. of yep. the environmental damage they create. Yeah. Again, sounds a lot like fossil fuel companies, right? Externalizing costs. So interesting. I would love to hear more about the climate intersection of all of this, because yeah, I know exactly. that's pretty central to your work. Yeah. And, you know, as Beyond Carbon is the, the name of this podcast. We focus a lot on climate, but also these issues that relate to it in multiple ways. So yeah, just curious, you know, how you think about climate and particularly climate accounting in the ETF. Mm, Thanks for this question. And I will say every day it evolves in that this is why we ask for disclosures up and down the supply chain for emissions with all of the companies in EV, because the better data we have, the better we can do this. Currently, what we do right now with the help of Ethos ESG, which was just bought by ACA Global, as you probably know, we are determined or certified as carbon neutral without buying credits. And the reason we're certified this way is because we're avoiding making the emissions in the first place. So we're not needing to buy the Band-Aid of credits. And the reason we avoid making the emissions is because we're we're not investing in those meat companies. So as we invest in the replacements to that highly emitting industry, just by avoiding emitting these emissions, we have a very powerful um, sort of carbon neutral certification without buying credits. I think this is an audio podcast, but if you go to eatvetf.com, the first picture at the top of the page really tells it all. And it's two thermometers, and it shows the global temperature potential warming of EATV and the global temperature potential warming of the S&P 500, the most innocuous uh, investment that probably everybody has. Now, our global temperature potential warming is 1.18 degrees Celsius, way below the Paris Accords. And that's due to the power of emissions avoidance and that plant-based innovation just isn't making those emissions to begin with. Now, the frightening part is the global 
potential warming for the S&P 500 is 3.2 degrees Celsius. So we know what the climate does at, at, at that, you know, way yeah. above 2.0. So it's frightening. But the, the benefit is you can use EatV to bring down the carbon footprint of your overall portfolio as you consider it as an option in your portfolio. So again, I'm a silver lining kind of person. No, so for a net zero investor or even an institution that is committed to net zero, this is the type of sort of climate solution strategy that I think would fit that that profile for an investor. And I think that the the climate neutral certification that Ethos has promoted primarily, I think, for ETFs, right? If I'm not I mistaken, so. I think that that should be something that would be productive and we sh will hopefully find more fund managers trying to pursue that. Do you, do you know how many different ETFs that are are out in the market that have that certification? Are you one of the very few? We are in the ACA Global Ethos ESG history and the Ethos ESG history prior to being bought by ACA Global, the only ETF that has been certified carbon neutral without buying credits. Right. So there might be another one out there, but it wasn't in Ethos ESG universe. Right, prior but it got there. Now. Right, got there by buying credits. Okay, interesting. Right, they yeah. got there by buying credits. Yeah, yeah. which in the carbon market, you guys probably talk about this, has its own wonky way it, it, of absolutely. Yeah, it's yep. got some wonk there. Sure, sure does. <laughs> You know, so one question that I had as you were talking about sort of forming the ETF, given the interconnected nature of the issues, was when you were thinking about the investment opportunity, why did you or how did you land on expressing it through investing in public companies versus sort of venture stage or private equity? Because I think in my experience, when we talk about impact investing, per se, especially with institutions, they immediately gravitate toward private equity or venture stage investing. But you are clearly thinking about this as an impact fund. Can you talk sort of through that distinction? I love this question. And I'm thinking myself that I should do some webinars on this because I agree with you. Everyone thinks impact investing is venture or private equity. I really believe that what we're doing in the public markets is impact investing. We're really focused on those companies that are innovating for change. So the reason I wanted to focus on the public markets is because venture is so risky and you need these high ticket investments and you don't have liquidity, you don't have diversification. And statistically speaking, you're going to lose that money. I mean, you might hit it big with a billion dollar company or a unicorn, as they say. But to do that, you really have to have a very diverse portfolio, more than 20 or 30 companies. So even having a, you know, 10 high ticket companies, usually you have to spend, you know, 50 to 250 at the early stage and 250 to 5 million, let's say, at the later stage. So even if you do that 10 times, not really enough. You're going to have to, you know, 20 to 30 at, at minimum, as my research has played out for me. So uh, that's risky and that requires a lot. Whereas I think of who are the people that are actively saying out there, oh, I'd like to see more environmentally conscious food choices. It's Gen Z and millennials. Well, we know they can't afford venture. So the people who are actually growing the sector and bringing it to everyone's attention should be able to participate in its growth. So that's another reason that the ETF really, you know, is accessible for them. Right. Sort of trying to democratize the opportunity in a way. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Why not? Right. And how do you think about the, you know, as we 
think about this as an impact strategy. How do you balance that? You know, as you said earlier, you see these as good investments, better business models, just from a, a numbers and return perspective. So how do you sort of balance that if there are, I mean, is it returns first and then screen for impact after, or do you find a balance if there's, you know, really high impact companies where you're not so sure on the, the financials? How do you think about that? Yeah. Great question. It usually goes like this. We have our universe of those that are innovating for change. And then we make sure that none of them are committed to legacy industries in a meaningful way. So they don't have primary products that are in legacy industries. And then we really look at the financials. So what is their revenue? Do they have a moat around their IP? What's their kind of EBITDA growth? And then we screen again, just to make sure that they work in an ETF. You know, they've got to be liquid. They've got to, you know, come in and out of our ETF with, with ease and no problems of liquidity there, et cetera. But again, we cast that a wide net in, I'll even say maybe a creative net in that we look up and down the entire supply chain and look at materials as well. Mm-hmm. You know, Elizabeth, the stocks in this sector have been, I think, beaten up a little bit here over the course of the last 18 months or so. Do you think that is the result of, you know, almost sort of a reset from the exuberance from, let's say, three to five years ago? So how do you sort of look at what's happened with you know, stock price performance across this broad universe? I think there have been one or two stocks, really tiny portions of our fund, I want to say under 1%, that have taken a beating, but there are many that are doing really well. They're just less known. They're, you know, so they're not the celeb ticker that everybody thinks of that's getting beaten up. And that's celeb ticker, I would say, you know, like, again, less than 1% and sort of not really a focus of our ETF at all. We're, we're really interested all the growth, it, this is what we see. The growth and the meaningful financial opportunity is going to happen in the supply chain. Yeah. That's where all the innovation is. That's where the real technology is. So it's it's really not with a consumer package good at the end. Although, you know, if they're a, running a good company, that's great. But we really focus on that supply chain because, you know, those innovations can be used by any company, be it meat or not meat or dairy or not dairy or, you know, so we, you're looking, that's why we keep stressing, you're looking for efficient supply chain innovation. And that's what we're really doing with the ETF. Elizabeth, I'm curious to, you mentioned, you know, something about social justice and people in this whole process. How do you think about that as you look at these companies up and down the supply chain, sort of what questionable or harmful practices are you avoiding or are we avoiding in this shift? And what are some of the things you look for in the companies that you are investing in? I mean, so mostly when we think about social aspects, it's about getting people food. And right now that's a problem already. Um, getting people food. People think food insecurity Mm -hmm. is something that's coming down the line in the future, but it's not. It's here right now. We saw that in COVID, these supply chain issues from fragile supply chains. But, you know, even prior to COVID, we were having trouble feeding the world with the land and water that we have at our disposal now. So primarily Mm -hmm. we think of food insecurity and addressing that and who's got access. But then we also, and, and, you know, this is more of a 
subtle conversation or maybe more of like a part two conversation, but we also look to make sure that there's no egregious human rights abuses or anything. You know, we're not an ESG fund in this way. Mm -hmm. We're not trying to be everything to everybody. So we're not going deep into Mm -hmm. governance rulings. I mean, first, I should have maybe Mm -hmm. said this, that we first do all the screens that we said we do. So not promoting legacy, really innovating, great financials and has to be working in an ETF. And then we just make sure no one's a bad actor. Now, if you are Mm -hmm. in the public markets and you are big enough to have a footprint of any kind, you probably have a carbon footprint. I don't know of a company that doesn't. So taking into Mm -hmm. account that they're still running a business, but we we look for any kind of human rights abuses, et cetera. Just make sure they're not there. Mm -hmm. So Elizabeth, what about sort of the role of policy in sort of supporting and advancing the universe of of companies that you're looking at. Can you talk a little bit about that? Are there any, let's say, specific policies that are on the table being considered that you think would sort of accelerate the, uh, some kind of a shift to a more sustainable food system? I love this question because it's really what's happening right now. It's so incredibly interesting to me. So when you look at semiconductors or all the manufacturing that we're doing right now in the United States, we're kind of bringing jobs back to the U.S., we're investing heavily, and it's part of an issue of national security to be able to make carb electric car batteries and to be able to make semiconductors and know that we have access to that. We're not going to be subject to another country's will on that. We're going to start doing the same thing with food, and we're going to do it for food and security. We're also going to do it for national security. Whoever controls food, whoever has that innovation, we might not be trading in the future like we did with other countries in the past. And so right now, we have supply chains that would cause enormous damage to the ability to have access to food if, you know, China and the U.S. sort of break relations, you know. So um, I think you're going to see a lot of policy support, infrastructure spending to bring food innovation back or more robustly exist in the United States. It's interesting. And I'm, I'm curious, I mean, it kind of gets me thinking about the future and where all this is heading. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on what you see as some of the big challenges and opportunities as this shift comes through. And a couple of things that are just top of mind from some of the comments too. One is related to that is, is there, do you see any risks? It's, you know, there's sort of opportunities in terms of national security that you mentioned, but do you see risks in terms of control of food systems? Is there risk of centralization of some of these products? If we sort of move to these plant-based systems, are they going to be less distributed or can they remain sort of resilient and distributed? And I guess maybe related from sort of a health perspective, I think there's probably a lot of benefits here, but what are the, your thoughts on kind of the idea that these are in some ways more processed foods as opposed to where, how we've traditionally gotten meat from animals. And if we think about good, healthy, sustainable, you know, food systems where we can raise animals that are local and natural and, and healthy, do you see risks there in terms of the nutrition and health implications of all this? So you have to have me back on because that's like a two hour question. <laughs> um, I will get into it. And I think I'm going to have to take the last part first because there's so much there. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, my word. Meat doesn't have to have a label on it, but just because it doesn't have a label on it doesn't mean it doesn't have ingredients. So I understand that we all grew up on commercials showing that cows are happy and farmers have red barns and it's just not how the world functions. 99 
percent of our chickens, turkeys, lambs, and pigs are from animal factories and low 70s cows are from mm -hmm. animal factories. So no matter what that label says, that's what you're getting. And it's animal factories, which means you had to guess. I'll ask you a question. If you had to guess, how many animals do you think are in factories right now? Oh, gosh. Yep. Worldwide? At least a couple billion. A couple billion? Right? I mean, tens of 10 billion. Okay, so how or, many people are uh, how many people are on planet Earth? <laughs> right. We got eight billion people. So yeah, it's got to be more than 10 billion animals, I would think. Yeah, 80 billion. So now we talked about the conversion rate of calories, 25 to 35 calories to get one calorie of cows. So you're gonna have to cut down a lot of trees, grow a lot of crops. The animals need land, time, water. I oh, gotta cut down more trees. They need more crops. So uh, you see that that math quickly doesn't work, which is why companies like Cargill no longer call themselves a meat company. Cargill calls itself a protein company. They don't care what they're doing as long as they're feeding people. They don't care what it is. So that's only to show that industry is already shifting. Legacy industry is shifting. So let's go back to that factory situation. So meat in general is going to have trimethylene oxide, TMAO. It's mm -hmm. going to induce TMAO MAO in the body. It's going to have animal heme. It's going to have cholesterol. It's going to have no fiber. It's it's weird to think about it but because it looks fibrous. It's all thick and it looks like fibers, but it's it has no fiber, which is hard for the human digestive tract because our digestive tract is so long and something that has no fiber has trouble moving in it. So, and that's why it's connected to colorectal cancer and it has cholesterol, which is why it's considered um, heart disease inducing. And you've probably heard this before and uh, connected to diabetes. So, and these things are in addition to antibiotics and hormones that are in the animals. So there's a lot that's in that meat that you just don't know about or don't think about. So in many ways, this is an opportunity for much healthier outcome. Even the processed item. I mean, I think when people know when they pick up a box and they scan a barcode, I think they know it's processed to some degree, but there's processing like Doritos and mm -hmm. then there's processing like bread. So which is processed because you dehull it and you, so all of our bread is processed and, and the plant-based mm -hmm. burgers, et cetera, are much closer to the bread than they are to the Doritos, but still they're not going to have cholesterol. They're not going to have antibiotics. They're not going to have hormones. They're going to have a little bit of fiber. They're going to have less saturated fat. They're not going to have animal heme. They're not going to induce trimethylene oxide. Are they a carrot? They are not. So you're, it's where you want to be on the spectrum. And, you know, when I walk into a birthday party, I fully <laughs> expect to have birthday cake. I know it is bad for me. I'm going to do it. I'm probably going to have two pieces. Though, so, you know, sometimes you just want to sit down with a burger. Like, I'm so super sorry. I'm sitting down with a burger and that's the gig. You know, like, I don't know that we expect every burger to be a salad. Dumb question that is uh, somewhat related. What are your thoughts on insect protein and where that's going? Is that ah, something you look at? Here's a lot? what I, <laughs> I really do hope you have me back. This is a lot of fun. <laughs> uh, here's what I think about insect protein. According to the United Nations, the top three reasons for the next pandemic, not the one that we're sort of still in now, but the next one are all related to eating meat. The top two of the top three reasons are related to intensified animal farms, animal factories. So when you think that you have low 70s for cows and 98 to 99% for chickens and turkeys and pigs living butt to snout in their own feces, you think, well, it's probably going to be hard to outrun a pandemic in those conditions. Mm -hmm. And the reason they give them antibiotics is because they're all sick. 
So that's why we have antibiotic resistance. We can talk mm -hmm. about that in a second if you would like. Mm. So when I think of insects being much smaller than cows and pigs, and I think of all the disease that has come from insects, malaria, the tsetse fly, yellow fever, I think it's insane mm. to double down on animal factories from strictly a public health pandemic risk of controlling these small things that if they are sick on mass, because we need so many more of them than we need cows, mm -hmm. you know, in terms of their individual ecosystem, mm -hmm. it's asking for trouble. This is what I think personally. It makes sense. You know, it does make sense. I, I mean, all this, Elizabeth makes a ton of sense. Land use. Mm -hmm. Yes. Animals, climate, healthier food. Word. What's the biggest impediment? Why haven't why haven't we made more progress on plant-based food systems? Mm -hmm. So many reasons. Let's go with the the math first. Price has to come down. And that comes from policy spending, which we talked about. And I think you're going to see as inflation happens with beef because of droughts, et cetera. And they, we had the same with eggs recently because so many of the birds were sick, avian bird flu. So now we're back to that, um, the health issues there. So I think price is going to come down as innovation scales. And that's a question of investing in infrastructure and policy. So you're going to see that. And when price comes down, it's just going to be the S-curve adoption that you that we think of. And I can send mm -hmm. you or anyone on this podcast who's listening, I can send you the S-curve predictions that are looking at like 2026, 2025, we'd start to really ramp up and be kind of in full mode by 2032. And by the way, there's a lot of money to be made. I'm not promising the future. I'm only saying at the beginning of S-curves, there's whether it's food or other, there's a lot of money to be made during that time, but one can. Uh, so I think it's a question of price. And then I think, you know, we do have to recognize the meat lobby is is up there with the pharmaceutical lobby in terms of how much mm. power they have. And when one asks me, and, and people ask me maybe four times a day, but aren't plant-based options more processed? They're, they're getting that information, <laughs> which is a very skewed bit of information from the meat lobby. So, you know, mm. there's subsidies in place that promote old legacy systems that just haven't switched over yet, but they will because we don't have a choice for feeding people or climate. Well, Elizabeth, I, did you have any um, concluding thoughts? Anything we should talk about that we haven't? I just maybe I'll I'll wrap by saying I think this is of interest politically to both Democrats and Republicans. I think this is of interest to investors either for impact or for riding a secular trend and getting that boost. I think in the very near future, you're going to see openness towards novel systems in food that make our food cheaper, safer, and tastier. So I think it's it's a very exciting time, even in a world of woe, which we kind of live in a world of woe at the moment. I think it's a very exciting time. Mm -hmm. Well, it is exciting indeed. And thank you so much for joining us to share your thoughts on all of this. You've got great knowledge and expertise around all of it. And it's fascinating to hear because it's such an important part of our, our world and our future. So really appreciate you taking the time to, to join us today. Thanks for having me. It's going to be really interesting to follow this as well over the course of the next couple of years. So we'll definitely have you back on. Can't wait. That's wonderful. Thanks, Elizabeth. Thank you. Thank you.